0: Candidacy of scripture, part two. Yesterday, or last week, we uh, dealt with the... candidacy of scripture, but I broke this lesson up... ...because there was so much material. We're going to get all sorts of technical today. Um, but last week was more general... ...and I actually am going to turn it over to you... ...and I know some of you haven't had your coffee... ...and that's fine. I want someone to tell me from last week... ...what do you remember... ...is the definition... ...of canon? What's the definition of canon... It's from the Greek kanon. it mean, okay, yes, like law or measuring stick. What did it literally refer to? Does anyone remember that? It was the reed with the notches, so like a measuring stick. And what does it come to mean? What does the na- the word kanon come or canon come to mean? Not truth. Not how we not how we use it in this. The official accepted scriptures or the official accepted Star Wars universe, or the official, you know, accepted... Yeah, don't go there. No, the canon is the authoritative and kind of official uh, understanding of what is the accepted body of truth. Um, and in the, and when we're talking in biblical terms, we're talking about what are the accepted uh, and, and uh, understood uh, sense of what are the authoritative bro- books in Scripture. Now... Here's a question. Who, de- who, who remembers who determines the canon? Who determines the canon? Oh, is it the slide already up there? Who determines the canon? God determines the canon. How does God determine the canon? Through inspiration. If we believe. That God speaks authoritatively and has spoken in an authoritative word, then he gets to decide when he's doing that, right? We don't get to decide when he's doing that. He gets to decide when he's doing that. So he breathed out the authoritative scripture. What did what part did man play in that? Well, but man played no, get Kelly say man played no part in that part. What did man then need to do? Receive, yep. There were human decisions involved. Discover. Discover. The church's task was a process of discovery, not determining. It was discovering which words, which what, what was the authoritative word of God. God has spoken, we believe that, we understand this, said the early church. Now we need to figure out by which... Uh, because there is there an authoritative facts down from heaven list of the books of the Bible? There's not. So there, is, there was a process by which man determined, but it was, uh, I won't say process by which man discovered, but it was not determining, picking and choosing, we're going to decide what God has said. God has said it's our responsibility to discover it. And that distinguishes, there, there are things that uh, distinguish, there's other great stuff, right? There were other good writers, godly men writing, you know, either right around the same time or right afterwards, but the, so the question isn't what is good to read, or what would be helpful and profitable, right? Our, BJ's sermon today is going to be, uh, a, is going to be um, very helpful and profitable, not every word inspired by God, breathed out by God, he's preaching the breathed out word, but his sermon itself is not the breathe that word. Yeah, Mom? that are in the Bible now or voted for them or however that came about, and we're going to talk about that. Do today. you think they felt or knew or believed that they were on the path of discovering something instead of determining something? Yes. Yes, I do. Because of how it, how as we're going to see how that process worked out, I believe it is going to feel much more like discovery than than like um, than like uh, determination. So, okay, so God determines the canon through inspiration. We then, the church, had the responsibility to discover it. Therefore, it's appropriate to say that the. The Bible created the church, not the church created the Bible. Okay, that's all review from last time. Now, we're going to move on to new material. Um, We, uh, How do we know that we have the right Old Testament books, and how do we know that we have the right New Testament books? So next slide, please, John. Okay, how do we know, because the process was a little different between the two. How do we know we have the right Old Testament books? And the answer is going to be, as John brings up the different lines, we have the same books as the Jews did. We have the same books that Jesus did. And we have the same books that uh, that Jerome did. And you're like, what, Jerome? How does he fit on that list? Well, I'll tell you in a little bit. Okay, next slide. We have the same Old Testament books as the Jews. Now, why is this important? Because Romans 3, 2 said, uh, in Romans 3, uh, Paul's talking about what are the advantages of being a Jew, given that, the, that one advantage isn't that you have an inside track into salvation uh, over Gentiles. What is, the, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Well, great in every respect, he says. For the first, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So because God gave the Old Testament canonical writings to the Jews, they should know which books they are and which books they aren't right so the by, by the time of of Jesus these had been established this had been this had the canon the old testament canon was established by the time of Jesus and the apostles and they the, you know that process was trustworthy the apostles were using the bible that had already been uh, established in the old testament and we have the same old testament books that the Jews did even non-christian Jews uh uh, you know, even even Jews that have continued on, the, the, the um, not unbelieving Judaism today, still holds to these same books. So the first century historian Josephus, he gave an order and a number and a description of the Old Testament books, and they were the same as what we have. The Talmud, that's a collection of rabbinic writings that dated. They, it happened over a course of, I think, a couple centuries, but no later than 200 A.D. And they detailed out the order and the number of the Hebrew scriptures, and it still still matches our Old Testament books. And the Jews rejected what is called the Apocrypha as scripture. Now, how many of you grew up? Anybody grow up reading the Apocrypha as scripture? Probably from a Catholic background. Kelly did? Damon did? Yeah. So, so the question is, what's the nature of the Apocrypha? These, these are 14, about 14, Jewish writings that came during the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So the last prophet's uh, happened you know you, had, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, that time frame, and, and probably the prophet Malachi really is actually about the last uh, to have written and Zechariah, and then you have a four hundred period year period before Matthew, and the Gospels begin before, really before Gabriel appears to Zechariah. Um, so during this four hundred years of silence, there were, the Jews were still a people, they were still writing. But the question is: Were those writings that have been that have have been preserved? Are those writings have the authority of Scripture? And the answer is no. And the Jews never considered them Scripture. Um, so the word apocrypha just actually means hidden, because these were the hidden books that weren't weren't part of the canonical stri- Scriptures. And so the disagreement that there is between, if you will, Roman Catholics and Protestants over whether these books should be included, actually the the Jews. The Jews also don't hold these as scripture, right? Um, Now, how did this come about? Well, Rome officially added seven of these apocryphal books to their Bibles in the 1500s at the Council of Trent. So until then, there had not been... The the, the status was less certain, uh, and we're going to see that the the books that we have in our Bible were already established uh, well before that... But then, then Trent in the fifteen hundreds said, "We're going to say these seven books are also scripture," and they called them Deuterocanonical, a second canon. So they acknowledged that they were that they were in a different category, but said they were inspired and ought to be included. Now, how is it that fifteen hundred years after the after the death of of the apostles, uh, is the Roman Catholic Church adding books to the Bible? Well, because Remember, what we have established is the Bible creates the church, but if you have a Roman Catholic understanding of authority, come to the Reformation Conference next weekend, uh, the church creates the Bible. The church authoritatively determines what the Bible is. That's what all we've been saying all along. That was that theological claim we've been making. No, that's not true. The church does not determine the word of God. The church discovers the word of God. Well, in Catholicism, the church determined, the thought the church determined the word of God. They were able to, um, they were able to say, yes, these books are additionally uh, scripture. But Protestants and Jews have rejected these books as canonical. Some Roman Catholics have as well, including um, the, one of the greatest popes and one of the, one of the last, if you might, you might say good popes, Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century, um, and, and he also rejected those. So, you know, if a pope says it's not scripture and you think that, anyway, never mind. Um, here are some reasons that the Apocrypha ought to be excluded from the canon of scripture. Um, apocryphal books can. Uh, let's see. I think. Yeah. Here you go. Good. Apocryphal books contain errors. They just contain errors of fact, history, geography, chronology. They would not pass the inerrancy test, right? So, as we said at the beginning, God's word. God. The un. God's word is the word of the unlying God. And therefore, we believe that the Bible in its original manuscripts makes note ...the authors were kept from error. And these books just have errors in them. Um, number two, the apocryphal books are not quoted as Scripture in the New Testament. The New Testament is always quoting the Old Testament. The New Testament writers are constantly saying, as it is written, as, it, as the Scripture says. Uh, and the apocryphal books are never quoted as Scripture in the New Testament... Now there is a reference for those of you who 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 are say aha Brad but what about uh, there is a reference to a an, an apocryphal work in uh, in the book of Jude where Jude references uh, something that the, that Enoch seventh in descent from Adam says and his and a prophecy that he made but interestingly Jude does not say as the scripture says. So even though this prophecy was recorded in an old in an in an in, in one of these apocryphal books, it's not that Jude is saying, This is scripture. Um, just as in, in uh, Paul and Titus 1 says, one of their own, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Then Paul says, This testimony is true. Right? So he's quoting a Cretan poet. He's not, he's not claiming that the Cretan poet was was inspired, you know, and therefore he's including it into God's God's word. You know, his including of it is what's inspired. And in the same way, I think this quote from Enoch, you know, God inspired Jude to use this quote, but he wasn't necessarily claiming that this quote uh, itself was from an inspired work. So the apocryphal books are never quoted, and it doesn't have the classic formula, as scripture says or as it is written. Um, so... The Apocrypha books are not quoted as scripture in the New Testament. Uh, Last one, the Apocrypha says itself that there was not prophecy when these books were written. So in 1 Maccabees, it says, you know, there were no prophets during this time. Uh, So they were written during the 400 silent years when everyone knew, everyone understood God was not speaking a prophetic word, and so there cannot be these, these words uh, we understand the, the writing of scripture to be a, profi- a prophetic act. And if prophets are not active, uh, then the, if the prophetic word is not there, um, then this isn't uh, to be understood as scripture. That doesn't mean it's not good writing. And as I said last week, the reformers didn't say, don't read these books. It said, read them for profit, but don't read, read them as scripture. The same way I would recommend that you write, read a book by J.I. Packer. It's not scripture, but it's profitable. Okay, any questions about that? Calvin? Are they, these books profitable to read? I think so. They're not... They're not uh, d- just read them with discretion. And, and they need to be measured along the measuring line, like everything else, of God's Word, which, is, which they are not. So you read them, you say, hmm... This is profitable. You look at this and you say, hmm, I wonder what this is talking about. And you compare it to Scripture. If Scripture affirms it, then go ahead and affirm it. If Scripture doesn't affirm it, then be suspect. You know, It's just, they're human, they're human writings, profitable human writings. What way would you say they're profitable? Like, what's a... Just like an example. Well, an example would be the Maccabees given. Give a, we assume a fairly accurate representation of the wars of the Jews against the uh, cruel reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is where we get the, uh, where Hanukkah comes from. Right? So that's, that's just a good, it's good to know that history. Um, It actually is helpful in understanding Daniel, uh, because Antiochus Epiphanes is one of the, is one of the kings. Um, that's referenced in all the crazy apocalyptic visions that Daniel's having, um, I believe. So you're, you're actually seeing the seeing how God's people endured under under torment. There's even a mystery story. Uh, Daniel becomes a detective in, in in one of the stories. Now I don't know whether the like I say it's not scripture, so I can't tell you that it actually happened. But Bell and the Dragon uh, is a is a detective story with Daniel as Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So, how did the Jews, who thought that there was no prophecy mm-hmm. being made in those four hundred years, determine at that time what was acceptable prophecy? Oh, they so, so how, did they they know, know, how, how do they know? That there, how do they know that there that there were no prophets at that time? Or how do we in this time? Right. Well, the prophets of God actually announced that they were that it was so. Right. God raised up the prophets. Elijah isn't confused as to whether or not he's a prophet. Malachi isn't confused as to whether he's a prophet. Uh, there were, the, now, there were false prophets, too, and so you're trying to determine, and how do you know whether someone's a pro- false prophet or not? You compare it to what God's word has said or what God's prophets are saying. So the the people of Israel were responsible to understand the difference between prophecy and not prophecy. Not prophecy doesn't come true, not prophecy. You know, you know, So there's actually a means of evaluating prophecy in the Old Testament. They would have been doing that. So, Any other questions? All right. This, I think, is really fun. The next thing is that we have the same books as Jesus. And this actually uh, comes from two different texts, and I think it's really helpful. So the Hebrew Bible has three divisions in it. The Jews think of it, and Jesus thought of it, in three big groups. The law the prophets, and the writings. And they were actually in a different order than we have in our, in our Old Testament. Um, that's just a difference in convention. Uh, they had the law, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. That's mostly the wisdom literature and some other stuff. Okay? The traditional ordering and the division of the Hebrew Scriptures is in these three parts. And, the, and Jesus, in Luke 24, I'm going to read Luke 24, 44. This is what Jesus says. After he's risen from the dead, and he's telling them all sorts of important stuff they need to remember, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses, and the Prophets, and the Psalms, he uses Psalms instead of writing, Psalms is the first and the biggest and most, you know, most." obvious book in the writings. The Psalms and the prophets, or the the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, he doesn't say and the Apocrypha, uh, or whatever word he might have used for that. Uh, and And they did have words for it. But he didn't put in there a reference to those books. He's not saying that everything written about me in the Law, the prophets, the writings, and the apocrypha, and the apocrypha was not considered to be part of any of those three divisions. So he's saying all of Scripture, right? The, the clear point is all of Scripture points to me, and he doesn't reference the apocrypha. So he's not calling the apocrypha scripture. Yeah. Included in one of those categories. The history books are actually included in the prophets uh, because they actually, you know, they're actually telling the stories of the prophetic acts. So, like, for instance, first uh, and second Samuel, first and second Kings are actually included in the prophets. So, yeah, Skylar, Is, is there a reference in the Apocrypha to, to a Messiah and Jesus is? I guess that's my question. Yeah, good question. Uh, I think so. Honestly, I have not read them much. So I've read the detective story. Um, but I haven't read um, them. Does it, BJ, do you know the answer to that? I haven't read them much either. David and Kelly, do you know? I can't recall. Can't recall. Okay. Yeah, I... There's a messianic expectation, I think, but um, but Jesus is not referring to them as what the authoritative word is uh, in order for uh, to confirm uh, as a witness to his messianic work. Um, now, the next the other time when Jesus' own words seem to confirm this is in Luke eleven. Now, this isn't his point. His point is that he's castigating the Pharisees. Uh, for persecuting him. Um, but he says in, uh, 50, in ver, uh, 11 verse 51. He says. Uh, Therefore also the wisdom of God said. I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of whom they will kill and persecute. Right? So he's saying you guys are going to kill and persecute my disciples. So that the blood of all the prophets Shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary now interestingly, just by an accident of English, it works pretty well from us from Abel to Zechariah from A to Z, all the prophets all the death of all the, all the blood of all the prophets is going to be charged to this generation now of course that 's just an accident of English but He's actually doing a very similar thing because Abel is the first martyr in the Old Testament and Zechariah is the last martyr in the Old Testament when you put Second Chronicles where he would have put 2 Chronicles. They would have put 2 Chronicles and Zechariah's story at the end um, we can talk at a different time about why we arrange them differently. But regardless, Jesus' Bible, if you will, went from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. And the very last martyr in the Hebrew Bible is Zechariah. So he's saying essentially from A to Z, from Genesis to maps, you know, all of the prophets who have died are going to be charged to this generation. Now, what books is, are not included in his A to Z? The Apocrypha. So he's. He's putting parentheses, if you will, around the beginning and the end of Scripture, and he stops short of identifying the Apocrypha as Scripture. So Jesus doesn't see the Apocrypha as inspired. I think that's pretty useful to know that. I think that feels, feels pretty helpful. If Jesus didn't see something as Scripture, then I'm not sure that I need to. right? I think he knows better than me. Okay, next is that we have the same books as Jerome. You're like, who on earth is Jerome? Jerome is one of the church fathers who is probably the best biblical scholar of the early centuries of Christianity. So he was a contemporary of St. Augustine. Augustine was probably the greatest theologian of the early church, um, of the first few centuries of the early church. But Jerome was probably the best biblical scholar. It means his understanding of scripture and how it fits together and how it works uh, Ought to carry a lot of weight. Um, a lot of uh, the church fathers are less clear about the apocryphal books, but he, who's the greatest of the biblical scholars, is very clear. He rejects them as scripture. He was actually the only one—one one of the only church fathers that knew Hebrew. He realized that as the church continued to move west, and as the language of the church uh, grew increasingly to Latin instead of Greek and not Hebrew anymore. You know, the New Testament was in Greek. Um, So very few of people nowadays were actually studying Hebrew and and understanding the scriptures, and fewer and fewer were even doing Greek. He realized, we got to have a really good translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament into Latin. So he went to Jerusalem, learned Hebrew from the rabbis, so that he could make an act, and then he translated... From Hebrew into Latin and from Greek into Latin. So he he published what's called the Latin Vulgate, which apparently, according to my notes, is the is still the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I would want to check that fact, but um, but my source is a good one. <laughs> um, so, but he realized that that Christianity was getting increasingly kind of uh, stretched from its Jewish roots. And so he actually really wanted to focus on getting his Old Testament right and getting that very very solid. Yeah? Had, it, had the Old Testament been translated from Hebrew to Greek before this? It had been translated... The, the, yes, the Old Testament had been, had been translated from Hebrew to Greek. That, that was before Jesus was born. That's the Septuagint. A lot of the quotations in the New Testament are from the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation. Yes, he translated from, source from, yes, Latin, he translated from the, from the source material, from the original book, well, not the original copies, but the original Hebrew. Now, what the Church, what the Latin Church had been working on so far, was a translation of the Greek. So it had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, from Greek into Latin. He's like, no, 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 that's not as good. We need to go back to and translate from Hebrew into Latin, and that's what he did. So, and he is perfectly clear, as he does all of his different scholarly work in preparation for this, he says, no, these apocryphal books are, not, are, are, are helpful, but not scripture. Here's what he said. Um, he describes the books that he translated from Hebrew into Latin, and he lists the 22 books of the Hebrew scriptures, which maps which match the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and correspond to the same 39 books we have in our Old Testament today. So he had 22, we have 39. You're like, oh, no. They, they, he got, put all the minor prophets together. He put some of the firsts and seconds together. So, um, so, it, so he had 22, but they're the same as our 39 he specifically named other books than these 22 Hebrew scriptures, which should be removed and placed in the Apocrypha, and they are the ones that we're, familiar, well, that we're not familiar with because they're not in our Protestant Bibles. The Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Judith, Tobit. Oh, Judith is a great story. Tobit, the Shepherd of Hermas, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees. So he's like, not scripture. So the greatest biblical scholar of the, old test, of the, new, of the first century's church uh, said no. Okay, that thus ends the fact that we have the same Old Testament as the Jews, as Jerome, and as Jesus uh, gives us gives us warrant to be very confident. Yeah, Cal. Uh, I just looked it up. He was commissioned to do this work in 382. 382, thank you. That's really helpful. So, early on. Damon. If your source is correct um, in regards to the Official, the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate yeah. is what it's known as, and it's still used by the Latin Church, which mm-hmm. is a subdivision of the Roman Catholic Church that does all their uh, sermons in in Latin. still in Latin. Yeah, and it's interesting that, that the Church, in adding those books, went against the counsel of their most uh, their most wise biblical scholar who did all this work. Right. So, All right, turning to the New Testament, to the, turning to the New Testament, how do we know we have the right New Testament books? Well... First we're going to go theological, then we're going to go technical. Here's why we have, we know we have the right New Testament books. Number one, we have the anticipation of the New Covenant. Remember that the word testament, as in Old and New Testament, is just the Latin translation of the word covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We can also refer to the Old Testament books as the Old Covenant scriptures. And Jeremiah 31.31 and other texts promise that a new covenant is coming. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the old covenant tells us that a new covenant will be coming. In one sense, the Old Testament tells us that a new testament will be coming, which anticipates that other canonical scriptures will be added to The ones from the Old Covenant. There will be, if you will, more books added as God reveals the New Covenant. So the Old Testament itself, in anticipating the New Covenant, also anticipates other writings that they should assume will be, that they, so it's not, should not be surprising that the New Covenant revelation comes with New Covenant writings. Um, we have the arrival of the Messiah. So then Jesus actually arrives on the scene, and Jesus is the what? He is the, read Brad's mind, he is the God-man, right? So God is speaking, God is standing there, BJ's like, even I don't understand his mind. Um, <laughs> God is standing there on the, sermon, on, the mount, uh, on the mountain where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking the word of God right so if god is himself speaking by definition god's words are god breathed right god's words are inspired and therefore of equal authority with the divine scriptures what jesus says is of equal authority with the scriptures christians then recognized the inherent authority of jesus words and wanted to record them and share them as sacred scripture right so no surprising that matthew and john and and then um, mark is as we'll see is is uh, Peter's protege and Luke is Paul's protege. They're actually writing down the words of Jesus, who they believe to be God in the flesh. Makes sense that his words are going to be um, are, are going to be the word of God. Uh, we also have the authority of the apostles. There we go. Jesus gave his apostles the authority to speak his word with his own authority. So we don't have any record of Jesus himself writing down his own words. The only time we have a record of him writing anything is in a, a text that I think is, yeah. It's when um, he writes on, uh, he writes in the dust when he's saying to the to the woman, saying, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. But that was in the dust. We don't have a record of what he wrote even there. Um, but his disciples wrote down what he said by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in John 14, the night before he dies in the upper room, he tells his disciples that he's going to send them his spirit and cause them to remember his words and his teachings that he said to them. So this, if you will, he's saying, I'm going to remind, the spirit is going to keep in mind all the things I taught you. So therefore, this is a kind of a pre-authorization that the, that the apostles are going to author these books, and they're going to have the accurate words of Jesus in them. Okay, And the church, we know from Ephesians 2.20, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The early church studied the authoritative teaching. Right, You remember in Acts 2.42, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. But they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because the apostles' teaching are an accurate representation of Jesus' teaching. And their interpretation of Jesus' life is an accurate one, right? As they interpret the events of his death and resurrection. This all is with apostolic God-given authority. So the apostles knew they wrote with this authority, just like the Old Testament prophets, there's indications that the, that the writers of the, Old, of the New Testament recognize that what they're writing comes with God's own authority. So in 1 Thess 4, Paul says that rejecting his word that he's writing to them is the same as rejecting God's words. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And Paul calls for his letters to be read publicly in the churches, which is reserved only for scriptural writings. So there's some evidence um, that uh, the that the apostles are self consciously realizing that the things they're writing are uh, of authoritative nature. Okay, next slide. So in this process of discovering God's inspired and inscripturated words, what criteria? What criteria? As they discover what God has already inspired what criteria did the early church use when evaluating the various writings they came across? And what they looked at is four attributes. Yeah, why don't you give them all up there, John? The four attributes are that the works that they were looking for had to be apostolic, they had to be ancient, they had to be orthodox, and they had to be Catholic or universal. So apostolic, ancient, agreement with the truth, and accepted universally. Um, most discussions of the New Testament canon begin with these criteria like this is where you start with the technicals and actually I think that it's better to have them here after we've done some of that theological work to understand the idea of discovery so the history of the canon debates and the canon lists that's important, it's interesting but first we have to remember that scripture itself authenticates itself we can always legitimately fall back on the fact that the scripture itself declares itself to be the word of God you remember why isn't that circular? Well, it isn't that it's not circular. It's that everyone else's authority structures are circular as well. Yeah, Natasha. So, how did they choose which letters became a part of the Bible, as opposed to letters to churches that didn't become a part of the Bible? She's not a plant, ladies and gentlemen. That's the, that's the next uh, that's the next point. So, how, so they're going. So writings arise, right? The the. the all the, all the things that we have, and some other things, are all being created. Are, are all being written, and now they're making the. Now they're trying to figure out and discover which ones are the word of God. And now they're now we're going to look at what did they look for. What are they looking for? So apostolic first, it had to be a writing to be in order to be accepted as. To be connected to an apostle, written by an apostle or closely connected with an apostle. And so we see even that Paul is, uh, is, is quoting, Paul quotes Luke as scripture in 1st Timothy. Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. So again, some of these things are starting to come already. Um, all 27 books of the New Testament can be traced back to an apostle somehow. So, Let's just go through them quick. Matthew and John, right? They're apostles, they're part of the they're one they're two of the 12. Matthew writes the Gospel of Matthew, John authors five books in total, right? The, the three letters, Revelation and the Gospel of John, right? So they're the works of an apostle. Mark, Mark is a traveling companion of Paul and he's a close a close close confidant of Peter. The 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 very very early church father Papias who's like you know, first generation after the apostles, he says that this is Peter's gospel. Uh, He's basically recording the apostle Peter's account. He was in Rome when Peter was in Rome. Basically, he's, and it's interesting, uh, Mark maybe shows Peter in one of the worst lights. Interesting, because he's getting his account directly from Peter. Peter knows what a chump chump he was sometimes. Um, Luke travels with Paul. Luke is like Paul's Gospel, if you will, but he also, Paul, of course, wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't. He was became an apostle after, as Jesus appeared to him on the road uh, to Damascus. Um, but he specifically says, "I went and interviewed eyewitnesses." Right? I've, I've, I'm setting out a careful account. So he's connected to the apostle Paul, and he's interviewing all these eyewitnesses. Paul's twelve. Paul, sorry, Paul's thirteen letters. Um, obviously, Paul uh, commissioned as an apostle on the Damascus road. He's uh, directly uh, responsible for 13. James, James is Jesus' half-brother. Just remember, he's not the same James that gets killed by Herod uh, in the middle of Acts. Uh, This is James, the half-brother and the leader of Jesus and the leader of the first Jerusalem church. Uh, And he likely is considered an apostle himself also. He did see the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appears to him, uh, his formerly unbelieving brother. It's a very sweet story. Jude, same deal. Jude is a half-brother of Jesus and a full brother of James. Um, Hebrews? Hebrews is the one, of course, that we really still don't quite know for sure who wrote it, but it's clearly connected to the apostolic community um, because it references Timothy. He's like, he like gives them news. By the way, Timothy's been released. Yay! You know, So he's part of, he's closely ad- attached to that and likely connected with Paul's band. If it's I don't think it's Paul, but some people, a lot of good people do, Um, but connected to the apostolic community. Okay, it has to be ancient. Any work later than the first century can't be from an apostle because they're all dead, right? And the requirement that the book be traced back to close connection with an apostle means that anything after the first century can't be concluded. By the way, a lot of the Gospels that you hear about, right from the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, all those ones, those can be, even, even people who try to use them and discredit the reality of the New Testament canon, still all, the, all of them acknowledge that those gospels, gospels date later, and they're not actually written by the people that it says they are. So The Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas, um, the Gospel of Judas was not written by Judas. Um, there had to be so there had to be apost- ap- apostolic connection. There had to, they had to be ancient. They had to agree with the truth. So they the the early church community has this deposit of gospel teaching from from the apostles because they're devoting themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. So for a book to be considered scripture, it had to be consistent with the teaching that the apostles had handed down from Jesus himself. In other words, it had to have the ring of gospel truth. Now, most of the, these later so-called gospels are Gnostic writings and not Orthodox. Let me just read you. You, have the, you. you wonder whether the Gospel of Thomas ought to be in your Bibles? Let me listen to the last verse of this gospel quote, quote, gospel. This is, what, this is what the gospel of Thomas says. And see whether, when you compare it to the, the rule, the canon of scripture, see how it measures up. Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. <laughs> Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. End of the Gospel of Thomas. Right? How does that compare with the rest of Scripture? Right? You can't have Scripture that is blatantly in contrast and contradiction to a, t- to a ton of other Scripture. And this is just nonsense. So don't worry that you're missing something if you don't go out and read some of these things. <laughs> Okay, that's, I, I acknowledge that's a particularly egregious example, but still. Like, if you read these things, they're pretty crazy. All right, it had to be, fourth, it had to be accepted universally. So it, it's not like one or two people could like a book, think it's scripture, and the rest of the church didn't, but they win the day. Now, the church, they, rec- they realized that the church broadly was going to recognize, the church indwelt by the Spirit of God was going to broadly recognize which writings were scripture, so the canonical gospels got. The, the, so the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, Paul's letters, they were all instantly recognized as scripture. They formed the canonical core. And yes, there were a few questions surrounding some of the the books, you know, like Second Peter, James, Jude, Second and Third John, Hebrews, and Revelation. They're the ones that had the most amount of discussion over them. No one was doubting that Luke should be in in the should be in the canon. No one was doubting that Acts should be in the canon. No one was doubting that Galatians should be in the canon. But the impulse was to be more narrow, not more expansive. So they were careful. It had to have a high bar, right? If if you're, if you're saying, oh God, to the best of our abilities, we believe this is you speaking. right? That's, there's a high bar for that, right? Um, so Christians were slow to recognize books they had questions about, not quick. They were looking to recognize... Uh, God's authorship. Um, all right. And actually, persecution would have helped with this because as, as the persecutors come and say, turn over your Bibles, you have to decide which Bibles you're willing to die for or which books you're d- willing to die for. So that actually had an effect in kind of getting the church clearer and clearer about what was... Um, what was the scripture. So the final consensus. The first list we have of the exact same 27 New Testament books by name is by, next slide, Athanasius in his festal letter in 367. So That was the first. Is there a slide for that, John? Yeah, there we go. He was the Bishop of Alexandria, and he recognized that these... He, He gave the list of the 27 canonical New Testament books. And you're like, yeah, that's really late, 367. But realize he's not actually determining this list. He's reporting what's come down to him, right? These are already recognized as the canonical canonical New Testament scriptures. These lists that occur starting in the 4th century are not establishing the canon, but they are representing a time when the complete canon has been established. And virtually all Christians for almost the entire church age have universally recognized these books as the deposit of inspired revelation from God that God has breathed out. So, to finish up, next slide. Uh, Forget the cheesy picture you know Jesus says my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and this is where as we read what here is here is contained we can be we can be confident that God has preserved his his voice through the work through his determining and speaking and then directing his church to recognize those books discover those books that actually contain his word and we can have confidence and trust in our Bibles. So next week we go on, we look at why why trust the Bible when the Bible has changed over time. We're gonna talk about how we know that what we have in the books is actually accurate to what was actually written. Okay, final question or two, Natasha? So um, like I might be wrong, but isn't there a reference to prior letters going to the Church of Corinth that Martin mm-hmm. So how do we know that those ones worked? Like right, the and if the we table. found them now, why would, would would we put them in the Bible? is really question. What if there was some archaeological discovery? Those letters would not would still not pass the test of universally acknowledged. Right, two thousand years later, you know, we that there's there's a trust issue that God, if he had in, if he has his word that is authoritative for his church, he's not going to just introduce that two thousand years later. Because, because they weren't and they weren't circulated and they weren't you know they weren't broadly known to the church. And Josiah. Same Same question again. All right. Yeah, Cal. Last question. So that uh, pretty much rules out the Book of Mormon. What (laughs) does? Actually, I skipped a section which talks about why this is different. The Old Testament anticipates a New Testament. The Old Covenant anticipates a New Covenant. The New Testament does not. Anticipate, you know, God has in these last days spoken to us through his son. It does not anticipate a future gospel, another testament of Jesus Christ. So, X, X, Nay on the Quran, X, on the Book of Mormon. Old Testament says something better's coming. New Testament doesn't say, well, it says something better's coming. Jesus is coming back. So, Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this time. Thank you that we have a Bible we can trust. Thank you that you have spoken and you are leading and and shepherding your church through your word. Uh, Thank you for the work of these men uh, and maybe women who were involved in this process of discovery. And we we pray that we would live our lives on these words as they did. In Jesus' name, amen.